<laughs> like Dave said, um, my name is Daniel Ernest, and I'm the small groups pastor over at, at GBC, uh, and it's a, it's a pleasure to get to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I get to hear a lot about you guys from Heath and from other people, uh, so it's actually it's, it's nice to get to be here with you guys. Uh, it's really exciting. Um, today, even though it's Valentine's Day and, and it's low-hanging fruit probably to preach a sermon on love, we're actually not going to do that. Uh, we're going to take a break from, I believe you guys are going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get into a little OT today, a little Old Testament. So uh, we're going to plop into the beginning of Exodus. So if you would please uh, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, and turn to Exodus 3. It's the, the second book of the Bible. And, and as you turn there, uh, what I'm going to do is, is give us a little bit of context so we're all up to speed. Uh, essentially, Exodus 1 and 2 starts out by giving us 400 years uh, of history in two chapters. So in chapter 1, we're told that for several hundred years, maybe 400 years or so, uh, Israel God's chosen people have been aliens in Egypt. And not only have they been aliens, but we learn that they've been slaves in Egypt for several hundred years. And in chapter 2, a baby named Moses is, is born. And as you probably know, Moses is, is kind of a big deal, right? Um, when Moses was born, though, Pharaoh, who's the, the king of Egypt, uh, he had made a decree that all of the male Israelite babies should be killed. Um, and if you've seen Prince of Egypt, which if you haven't seen Prince of Egypt, it's, I think it's still on Netflix. So date night tonight for Valentine's Day, Prince of Egypt, you're welcome. That was for free. But if you've seen the movie or, or better yet, probably if you've read Exodus 2, you know uh, that Moses actually escapes this decree of death from Pharaoh. And he's actually saved, ironically enough, by Pharaoh's own daughter. And he's raised in Pharaoh's court. And so chapter 2 shows us that, and at the end of chapter 2, we get to, we're introduced to grown-up Moses, uh, and grown-up Moses is, has a little bit of an edge. Uh, essentially, Moses is uh, out watching one day, and an Egyptian is beating an Israelite slave, and Moses decides to intervene, and he actually kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand. As you can imagine, that, that doesn't go over well. Once Pharaoh finds out, Moses has to flee from Egypt, and he ends up in a land called Midian. And that is where, if you're familiar with the story, the burning bush encounter happens. And that's really what we're going to look at today. That's where Exodus 3 sort of pick, picks up. I'm going to slow down here and describe what's going on in Exodus 3, and we're going to really focus on verses 13 through 15 of Exodus 3. Uh, but one day, as Exodus 3 will tell you at the beginning, Moses is minding his own business. He's a shepherd at this point, uh, and he sees a bush off in the distance. He's on a mountain, and he sees a bush, and it's, it's on fire. And the thing that kind of catches Moses' attention at first is that the fire uh, is not consuming the bush. The bush is staying the way it is. And on top of that, the bush starts to call out to Moses. It says, Moses, Moses. And that's some real Narnia stuff going on in Exodus 3. So naturally, of course, Moses begins to walk towards the burning bush. And as he gets closer, the bush says to him, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Moses, at this point, starts to put two and two together. He realizes he's standing in the presence of God, and the bush is speaking as God. And through the bush, God tells Moses 
that he's heard the cries of the enslaved people in Egypt and that he's going to actually use Moses to deliver them to freedom. So naturally, Moses asks two questions. The first question he asks is, is, why me? Who am I? Out of all the Israelites, and there's tons of Israelites, why are you talking to me? And the second question he asks, and this is the one we're actually going to focus on this morning, he asks, who in the world are you? He essentially says, so like when I go to the people and tell them that you're going to deliver them, and that I was having a conversation with a bush the other day, and the bush is the one that told me this, what am I supposed to say? Who are you? And God's answer to that question, who are you, I think offers us one of the most important things that God has ever said, an explanation of who he is. So read with me, please, if you would, Exodus 3. We're going to start with verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am remember, to be remembered throughout all generations. We pray for us as we enter into the word. Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you are a God that is worthy of worship. Lord, and as we gather, we pray that you would find our worship pleasing to you. And as we enter into your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate what is true to us, Lord, that we might know you better, Lord, and that that knowledge would drive us, Lord, closer to you. And thankful for, uh, for Jesus, Lord, and for him being the full manifestation of who you are we're thankful for his death on the cross, Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going to spend our time looking at the answer that God gives to this question, who are you? But before we launch into to what that means, I think it's important for us to at least pause and to, to think about the significance of names, both, both generally and then actually in the Bible. Um, when my wife and I were um, in college, especially as we started to get serious, uh, she loved to inform me of her favorite baby names. And I realized that probably should have been a red flag back then, uh, but she actually still does it. She, she keeps kind of a running uh, list on her phone. Whenever she hears one she likes, she takes it down. No, we don't have any kids yet. So again, I get that that should have been a red flag. But, but, but back in college, her favorite girl names were Stone and Alaska. And again, I know another red flag, um, but thankfully the Lord has, has really sanctified Kelsey over the last five years that we've been married. She's given up the name Stone, and, and my mom is always pestering me, when, asking us when we're going to have kids, and the answer is simply this, as soon as the name Alaska is out of the picture, we'll start to have kids. Um, well, obviously, I'm kidding, right? Names are significant. If you have kids, you know that you've spent time thinking of a significant name for your child. You want to name them something unique. You want to name them something uh, that has meaning. You want to give them a family name. So names are significant, right? In the Bible, that's no different. And usually in the Bible, a, a person's name will actually signify to us their character or some ability that they have or even their mission, 
especially, especially when that name is given by God. So for instance, in the Old Testament, Genesis, God changes a guy named Abram's name to Abraham. And he does that because Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. That's what the word Abraham means. It's in the New Testament too, when God sends his son to the world, God doesn't leave his name up to chance. In Matthew 1, an angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So when God gives people a name, it means something. And and knowing that will clue us in on when God gives himself a name. When God gives himself a name like he does here in Exodus 3, we can be sure that that name is packed with meaning. You see, God accommodates us by revealing himself in ways that will enable us to understand him. In other words, God is so incomprehensible to us. As created things, the creator is so incomprehensible. He has to stoop low in order for us to understand him. And so, and part of doing this is is him giving a name. If you don't understand exactly what I'm saying, think about if you have a dog, think about how you talk to your dog. Um, If I'm trying to tell my dog, Scout, that I love her, I don't speak like this. I don't say, Scout, I love you very much. You are the finest canine specimen in existence. Of course, I don't talk to Scout like that, right? Because Scout doesn't understand. She wouldn't understand. Uh, At this point, I probably was going to tell you how I do tell Scout I love her, but as your guest, I want to remain credible. Uh, So I'll uh, I'll leave that up to your imagination. Uh, anyway, essentially, this is what God is doing. God is the pet owner talking to the dog here. He's, he's revealing himself to Moses. He's talking to Moses. He's communicating to Moses in words and things that he can understand. This is what he's doing when he gives himself a name. So with that said, let's look at Exodus 3 again at verse 14. Again, Moses, remember, has just asked, who are you? And God answers and says, I am who I am. Notice the two I am's there. Later on in verse 14, he says it again. He says, I am has sent me to you. What does that mean? He asks God, who are you? And he says, I am. To start to understand, I think we need to understand that all three of these uses of I am is from the Hebrew word hava, which means to be. It's, it's essentially the being verb. If you remember your English, am, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. It's, it's the, the being verb. So God uses the being verb to be three times in reference to himself in verse 14. Then look at verse 15. It says, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Your Bible say the Lord in all caps. Really in Hebrew, this is Yahweh. The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, this use of the Lord, again, it's, it's really Yahweh, is, is basically a variation of that verb, hava, which means to be, and it, and it literally means someone who is. So when God says, I am, he's, he's saying, my name is someone who is. In the Old Testament, that's really, really important. It's used 6,000 times, over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, which just to give you a little bit of that significance, the the name Elohim, which you might have heard of, the more general uh, name of God, it's used three times as much as that name. So this name of God, I am, Yahweh, is, is very important. And, uh, you know, you might know this too, the Jews came to regard this term with such reverence, right, that they they don't even speak it. 
They wouldn't even utter the words Yahweh. So know this, when you see the Lord, you're reading the Old Testament, you see the words, the Lord, in all caps, know that it's not just the Lord that that's referring to. It's really, it really should read Yahweh, and it's going back to this Exodus 3 story. Uh, and so that's why I think this is really important. It's a, it's a great thing to unpack. So what does it mean? Like I said earlier, what does it mean when you ask your God, who are you? And he says, I am. I'm going to cover a couple of uh, implications with you guys of that name. And, and I'm only going to cover three, but there are dozens and dozens of implications. And, and uh, I was taught one time, especially if you were a guest speaker, uh, keep it short, stupid. So we're going to cover three. And my, my prayer is that in covering these three implications, you can start to begin to see the importance of this name. You can start to see that, like I said earlier, this actually probably is the most important thing that God has ever said because everything that he says before and after this basically hinge upon this being true. So first, what does it mean for God to be? Probably most basically and simply, it means that God exists. God is there. Remember what I said earlier, the Israelites had been in Egypt for over 400 years. The stories of God and his relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, those stories, those things are generations away. And you could see how it might be easy for the Israelites to forget that God exists. But in this moment, as God is interacting via a bush with Moses, he's showing his people that he hasn't gone anywhere. Like I said, this is basic, but before you kind of write this off as too simple, think about it. Most people on the earth live as if God doesn't exist, right? Really, even many professing Christians live as if this truth that God exists makes no difference in life. Uh, if you're familiar with the term, it's like they're a, a two percenter. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term, let me explain it to you a little bit. It's someone that attends Texas A&M but doesn't participate in the traditions that go along with attending Texas A&M. They would put Texas A&M on their resume, uh, but they don't act like or live like an Aggie. And so, in other words, they're the best types of Aggies there are. Um, <laughs> but we're like that as Christians sometimes, Right? Uh, we believe and, and we know that God exists. We openly profess Christ, but at times, and this is just as true in my life as it, as it might be in yours, we functionally act like God doesn't exist. I don't spend time in the Word getting to know who God is. I don't acknowledge that everything that I have, everything that I have is given from God to me, and I don't deserve it. When something bad comes up or a problem needs to be solved, I don't pause and go to God for guidance. I put my head down and I get busy, right? So this fact is basic, but if we step back, this fact is, I think we can agree that it's, it's the most fundamental thing to life, that God is, that God exists. Nothing is more foundational to your marriage. Nothing is more foundational to your job, to your health, to your mind, to your future than the fact that God is. We shouldn't take that for granted. God's existence gives life purpose. Another implication of the name I am, Yahweh, is that God does not change. 
God does not change. We see this truth affirmed over and over in Scripture. Malachi 3, 6 says, I, Yahweh, do not change. James 1 says, with God, there's no variation or shadow due to change. The author of Hebrews says, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember what God said in verse 14. He says, I am who I am. What this means is not just that he won't change, but that God is not influenced by any force outside of himself. He's not like us. We often change our minds because of unforeseen circumstances or or because of weak resolution. In stark contrast to that, God does not ever encounter a circumstance that is unforeseen. God has no weaknesses. Nothing in all of creation can take God off guard. Nothing backs him into a corner. Nothing forces him to act outside of his character. For us, this is really important to understand. For us, that means that objectivity in our relationship with God is crucial. What I mean by that is that we can't subjectively hold God to our feelings and our desires. We can't encounter certain doctrines in Scripture and be like, that that just doesn't seem like what God is like. We can't see or witness evil or, or pain in the world or even in our own lives and be like, is God even good? Does God even exist? It doesn't seem like a good God would allow something like this to happen. When God says, I am who I am, like he does in verse 14, it humbles us. God is who he is, and nobody's opinion of him, no matter how smart or sophisticated or politically correct or loving that they think they are, matters at all to who God is, because he is who he is. God is not made in our image as if we can arbitrarily pick and choose what we want him to be. And isn't that good news? Don't we want a God that isn't subject to time or space, a God that is unchanging and unchangeable? Can't you depend on that kind of God? He is who he is. There's no development, no progress in God. You cannot improve absolute perfection. You might ask, how do we relate to a God like that, right? A God that is perfect, a God that is unchanging. It seems like there's going to be a gap between us. How do we relate to that? And the answer is this. As creatures, as created things, we should strive, we should try our very hardest to know God for whom he is and for whom he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. Not for who we want him to be, but for whom he has revealed himself to be. And in getting to know who he is, we should conform. We should adapt our lives to his will and his character. That's how we interact with that sort of God. So we've seen that God exists. We've seen that he's unchanging. And the last implication I want to point out, and again, like I said, there's many others. But the last one is that Yahweh, I am, is present with you and me in suffering and in calling. Let's start with his presence in suffering. Remember back to the context of these verses. God's people are suffering as slaves in Egypt. Check out the end of uh, chapter 2. I'm going to look at verses 23 to 25. Verse 23 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Look again, uh, look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, God says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Verse 9 says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. You see what happened there? Don't you love what happened there? The people groan. They cry out for rescue. And what happens? God hears. God sees. God remembers. God says that he's coming down to deliver his people. Isn't it great news for us that we serve a living and active God? A God who intercedes on behalf of his people? If you're a parent in this room, you might feel overwhelmed. Or if you're in the workforce, you might feel stressed or uncertain because of the economy. Others of you might have lost somebody that you love, or you might be, uh, have a relationship that's causing a lot of stress, a lot of strife. You might be bummed because today is Valentine's Day, and that's just a reminder that you're still single. And so whatever it is, I, and I know that across the room, you guys are struggling with different things. There are different things that are confusing. There are different things that are difficult in all of our lives. What I want you guys to feel today is encouragement to not put your focus on your circumstances, but to trust in a God that is present in suffering, to trust in a God that hears when you groan, to trust in a God that sees your oppression. If there's anything we can be assured at looking in the Bible, God is faithful to keep his promises, right? Listen carefully. This is not a promise that God will automatically deliver you from pain, right? We don't believe in that. But if you trust in him more profoundly, what this is, is this is a promise that God will be present with you in your suffering. Like I said, God hears your groaning. He sees your suffering. And if there's anything we can be assured of again, it is that God is faithful to keep his promises over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New, culminating in Jesus, right? We see that faithfulness is one of God's greatest attributes. So as we suffer, we can be assured that God is with us. This is what I am means. He's present with us in suffering. But not only can we be assured of that, we can also see that I am is present with us in the midst of calling, Again, let's reflect on the circumstances of, uh, of Exodus 3. And if you would, please just go ahead and put yourself in Moses' bare feet, as it were, uh, for a second. You're talking to a bush, and that bush happens to be God. And, and God says to you, you're going to go to the ruler of Egypt, one of the most powerful men, if not the most powerful man in all the world, and you're going to tell him, I want you to let go of your slaves. Of course, as we said earlier, Moses immediately starts reacting just like probably you or I would do. And he asks, why me? Of all the Israelites, what do you mean I'm going to be the one to do this? And I love how God responds to Moses, right? Notice first what God doesn't say. God doesn't say this, well, listen, Moses, bro, like you are the best shot we've got in this deal. You grew up in Pharaoh's court, 
you know the Israelites too? And we were, you know, the angels and I were kind of looking around in the miners, and we decided to call you up. You're the best shot we've got. You're really great. You can do this, man, and kind of pat him on the, the bottom and, and send him to Egypt, right? God doesn't do that. Thankfully, God doesn't respond like that, right? These things are true about Moses. He did grow up in Egypt. He does know the Israelites, and God had no question, sovereignly directed every step of Moses' life towards this end. And isn't it good to know that there's a God that is behind the scenes orchestrating things, who's working all things together for our good and for his glory? Those things are true about Moses, right? But that's not what God says, God doesn't say, I chose you because of this qualification or this qualification or this qualification. Look at verse 12 in chapter 3. God says simply this, but I will be with you. In other words, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. I am with you. This is not about you as much as it is about me. And listen, there is major application for us there. What if God... What if, what if God actually chooses to call us to things in life, not because of our qualifications or our abilities, but in order to lead us to a place where we are radically dependent on his presence? This is what we see all throughout Scripture, isn't it? We see it here in Exodus 3 and Joshua 1. God says, Joshua, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In Judges 6, God says, Gideon, I will be with you. Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah, I will be with you. This doesn't change in the New Testament, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. And at the end, he says, and behold, I will be with you until the end of of the age. Don't miss this. The call to God's service, and if you're a Christian, you are called to God's service. It's not just pastors. It's not just Heath that is called to God's service. We are all called to God's service. That call is always, 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 always accompanied by the presence, the promise of God's presence. Let me say that again. The call to God's service is always accompanied by the promise of God's presence. You may think that you aren't qualified. You may think that you don't know enough. You may think that you have enough problems of your own. You may think there's no way that God would ever use you. But what you see here should encourage you. As we endeavor to serve, as we endeavor to use our gifts, as we endeavor to invest in the lives of other people, the promise of Yahweh's presence makes all the difference in the world. If you read on in Exodus, you'll learn that it certainly made a difference for Moses. To conclude, I want to make one final point, that is this God, I am Yahweh, this absolute, unchanging, and ever-present God is not just active in the Old Testament, right? He is drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. You see, we're just like Moses in this chapter. We are unfit to approach God because of our sin. We have to take our sandals off, and we have to cower in fear in the presence of God. There's an infinite gap of separation that exists between sinful men like Moses and you and me and Yahweh. But because Jesus emptied himself, because Jesus put on flesh, and because Jesus dwelt among us, and because he died on the cross and he rose victoriously from the grave, we have confidence as God's children to approach his throne. Listen carefully. Here's, here's the reality. 
everyone here this morning will one day stand before Yahweh. And if you stand before him in your sin, with your sin, you will be cast out of his presence forever. It's not a game. However, the beauty of it is, if you stand before God on that day, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because you've trusted in what he's done for you on the cross, then you will gaze upon Yahweh. You will gaze upon I am's beauty. You will see him as he is, and you will spend eternity with him. And ultimately, that is precisely what we were created for. That is a magnificent truth. The fullness of God, the fullness of I am, found itself in Jesus, and we have relationship with God the Father through him. That is the best news that there is. It is a magnificent truth. I'm going to pray to end here and lead you guys in uh, a time of corporate prayer. I'm going to sit down after I'm done, and if you guys want to uh, join in out loud, that, that'd be great, and then someone will come up to close us out. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you are, uh, that you exist, Lord, and I admit uh, today, Lord, that uh, that truth, Lord, doesn't always set in for me. Uh, I admit that I act a lot of times like you don't exist, Lord, that you aren't present with me, Lord, that I can change who you are. So, Lord, I, I confess that today, Lord, and, and just pray uh, that you would allow me to take rest and refuge in knowing that you are a God that exists, that is good, and that does not change. And, Lord, we're so thankful that uh, you sent your son Jesus to die for us, Lord, and um, that if, Lord, we have faith in him, we can have relationship with you, the holy God. So, Lord, we are so thankful for that. Um, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.